Welcome back to another episode of The Frisian Advocate. I'm Angie DePoit. And I'm Scott Kellenhofer. Thanks for joining us today. We have a, I think it's a fascinating topic. I know it can be a complicated topic, but hopefully we'll get some help with that today. So we're here with PhD candidate Marias Steensma and Dr. Bart Ducro from Wagonen University and Research. As most of you out there in the community probably know, the KFPS has been em- embarking on a, a multi-year research project regarding the conservation of the Frisian horse. So we're thrilled to have Bart and Mariah here today to talk to us a little bit about genetics. Don't worry, we're not going to get terribly too far into the scientific weeds of that. We'll try to keep it at a level that's interesting and hopefully enjoyable for you. And then we're going to talk about the research and see, you know, what do we maybe know already and what are we hoping to learn? So Dr. Ducrow and PhD candidate Steensma, we're so thankful that you're here today. So I'd love to start off by just getting a little bit of a background on both of you. So if we could start with Mariah, we'd love to hear what your background is, if you have personal involvement with Frisian horses, and then how you came to be in, in your position and that you're doing this research now. Okay, so um, nice that you invited us. I am Mariah, and I'm a Frisian horse breeder myself. My granddad had, uh, yeah, for 60 years, bred with horses. Then I also got interested in it. And I made these when I was 14. I wanted to make these breeding choices as well. And I was looking into the inbreeding level of these horses and what kind of stallions I want to have for my mares. Yeah, that's when I got interested in the Frisian horse breeding because of I wanted to look for what kind of matings are best. And to know more about breeding values, I started to do the study animal sciences in Wageningen. So I first did a bachelor and then I also did a master of animal sciences in Wageningen with the specialization of animal breeding and genomics. And that's when, when I got more and more interested in the genomics and also in some kind of disorders. Then last year, like the latest years, there are much more concerns about uh, genetic disorders in the Frisian horses. And I saw these concerns also about our aortic rupture and megaesophagus. And then I contacted Barty Crow. I said, can we do something about this? Can we make the Frisian horse population more healthier than it is now? And Bart said, uh, I was already thinking about it. And then uh, we made up this PhD project. Wow, I, I didn't know this background. So you're out there breeding, working with your family to do that and learning the history. And then you get interested in, in these topics and that leads you to school. And then you approach Bart and say... Can we do something? That's that's great. So Scott and yes. I were, this is kind of a question that we've been wondering ourselves is what initiated this research? So you're saying that it was between you and, and Bart, is that correct? Yes. So not the other way around. It wasn't that the stud book came to you and said, could we start this? You approached them. Yeah, it was sort of a combination because the stud book also wanted <laughs> to do something with this, but it was just like all together, like the concerns and also some news articles about the Frisian horse population. I think it was like perfect timing that we started this. But of course, the stud book also wanted to do something about it. But it's quite difficult to make such a big project. Wow. So did you present a proposal to them or did they have some ideas or how did that come about? Yes. So we went into a discussion with the stud book and we came up with some ideas ourselves. 
we discussed with uh, KFPS what they wanted to be in there or if they had other challenges, like they also have contact with the breeders. So maybe they knew some concerns of the breeders as well. And then we developed it into one project. Wonderful. That's great. And then Dr. Ducro, can you um, give us a little background on you? I, I know a little bit about you, maybe a little bit more than I know about Mariah, but we'd love to hear your background and if you have any personal involvement with Frisian horses and then, of course, your role there at the university. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. I'm also educated here at the university in animal breeding and genetics. In, and that's some days ago, some years ago. By that time, that was not so much the, the focus on, on horses in general in the educational program. I got involved after my education. And basically, it is my wife and her father that was doing breeding. They were breeding warm blood horses. There, I got uh, the interest of combining my breeding knowledge with the practical uh, horses. And... Well, that was really uh, fun and interesting. Later on, I got involved in the Frisian horses through graduation students that were doing projects on, on the Frisian horse, mainly related to genetic diversity, inbreeding problems. And that is already some, some 10 years, 15 years ago that we started out with that. And along the line, more projects came in. I really got interested. I got contacts with the veterinary university in Utrecht, where they already start collecting samples on the different uh, disorders. And uh, we thought, okay, we should take it a step further and started out with DNA analysis. And uh, there I came in and I'm still uh, happy to be involved in this uh, exciting breed. Yeah, you've had a, I think over the years, I've seen many things that you've written. And so I know that you've had a kind of a long history of consulting for the KFPS and providing advice. And certainly, uh, you know, I know at one time you worked quite a bit with Idzalinga when he was in his position as the executive director. So it's been a pretty good relationship, I think, between the studbook and your university, right? Yeah, sure. Yeah. It all started uh, by that time. Yeah, we have developed uh, a couple of things which worked out fine for the Frisian horse. Yeah, really exciting. Yeah, I think it's a good natural evolution in the relationship between the stud book and and especially with the research you're doing now. It's so it's a great fit, it seems like. There must have been, Mariah, when you and, and Bart approached the KFPS, you must have presented a compelling argument to the stud book to have them free up that amount of money for the research. Is it basically... Is the argument pretty much based on your experience and in, in issues that you've had in your breeding experience or in talking to other breeders or what? Yeah, that is also, uh, by that time, like Mangaia already said, the momentum was also right that there were some uh, rumors on new disorders, which could be pretty much risky for the continuation of the horse breed. On the other hand, there were also new genomic techniques that better could be used and give answers to the questions we had on these diseases and the inheritance of these orders. So that came nicely together. Uh, then we thought we can start working on uh, these uh, disorders and see if we can find the genetic cause for them and try to implement it into a breeding program. So when we look at the early history of the stud book, I think it's very interesting to consider you know, the different paths that were chosen, kind of how the stud book got its start, 
what the implications were on the gene pool. So can you explain to us a little bit about genetic populations and how things that happened in the beginning of the stud book might affect a genetic population, such as at one point there was an early decision to split the stud book out to those that wanted to accommodate crossbreeding and those that wanted to keep the breed pure. Then the stud book came back together at a certain point. And then it wasn't too long into the early 1900s before there was already kind of this critical crossroad of, you know, we only had handful of approved stallions left. So when when a breed population has that sort of beginning, how does that affect future generations and the implications in the future when it comes to genetics? Yeah, so it's as far uh, back uh, from my time. But when I read the history of the KFPS, we can see that there are two population genetic bottlenecks, so to say. So that is decrease in the population size followed by an increase in population size. And what we saw that in the early 1900s, there were only three breeding stallions left. And then there were some people which wanted to conserve the Frisian horse breeds. So they stimulated breeders to breed again with the Frisian horses. And then Another 50 years later, due to mechanization, because the Frisian horse was used for agriculture uh, purposes earlier on, the Frisian horse population also declined in size because they were replaced by machines. But then after that, due to more free time, the Frisian horse became more interested again and people started breeding again with them. But due to these so-called bottlenecks, you can imagine that in the past, if there were only like three breeding stallions left, and now we have around 100 breeding stallions and around 8,000 breeding mares, all these horses from now consist of genes from these three breeding stallions. So the genetic basis is quite small. Right. And so does that increase your risk of hereditary defects? I mean, how does that affect the health of the population when something like that occurs? Yes. So when you have these bottlenecks, the horses are more related to each other. So you have higher chances on inbreeding. And due to inbreeding, there is a risk of expression of these genetic disorders. So the high inbreeding in the past cause the expression of these genetic disorders, which we see now. It always takes some time before these genetic disorders got expressed. So, yeah, I think, Bart, you said it takes 10 or 20 years. Yeah, before. in general, it takes fewer generations, uh, say 10 generations before a genetic disorder is at such a high level in the population that people start hearing it from this disorder from different sides and then they say hey what's going on so the real notification of a disorder is in the population that takes about 10 generations so that means also that the disorders we are dealing with now they had their origin say from uh, 50 years back a generation is roughly 10 years in horses so the the inbreeding that was 50 years back in the population that is basically roughly causing the problems that we are facing with right now. Those historical shifts that you kind of alluded to, Mariah, when you talked about the shift between agriculture use and then recreational use later on, I guess it's probably been at least 15, 20 years maybe that 
we've been pursuing a more sportable horse. Definitely, I would say within the last decade, there's been a a pretty big push for that. How do those selections when it comes to our process for identifying horses with great sport potential or even like the in-hand inspections, do those selections that we make of specific characteristics, do they have just a minor impact on a breeding population of this size or are they, can they be significant? Yeah, it depends on how you're doing it. If you make it a sudden shift and there are only a few horses that are of stance in the new breeding goal, then you might have the risk of another uh, genetic bottleneck with this uh, shift. But in general, I think there are quite a few sport horses uh, that are suitable to breed with for expressing more a sports horse. It doesn't have to uh, uh, be a problem. And I think on top of that, in particular, what is interest of sports performance as a breeding goal, that it is uh, easier to really measure in an objective way the traits, and that is somewhat different from, for instance, confirmation. That that is harder to measure in an objective way, and then you have more that people are inclined to use the champion sires, the popular sires of the shows, and only those. And that has the risk of a higher uh, inbreeding rate uh, because of that. So in that sense, if you have an yeah well planned change of the breeding go towards more sports performance, that opens up, I think, opportunities for avoiding too high inbreeding rates. Okay, so that's a great line of thought there, because I do hear a lot of people comment out there publicly that there's, well, I guess I would summarize this by saying there seems to be this belief sometimes that, you know, when we kind of moved away from the bigger, more, as some people will call them, Baroque Frisians, the bigger bone, more hair, you know, the big racial types, the bigger horses, and towards a maybe a more sportable horse that that was a big impact on genetics and health. But if I'm hearing you right, you're saying that selecting maybe just on the basis of the stallion's performance and their scores individual stallions are more detrimental than kind of a slow shift away from one type to another. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah I think so. Yeah. And in particular, then you can also see on uh, those, now call it sports uh, sires, if you like, you can also see if it is confirmed by their progeny, yeah? if they are also really doing well in sports, as long as they have the opportunity, of course, to show, to express what they are capable of by having the right training and management and, and so on. Then I think you uh, also those that maybe doesn't have the hundred percent baroque confirmation, but they are doing well in sports and their progeny as well. Then they have a good chance to be popular based on their sport performance, and that they really in- inherit it to their progeny. Yeah? That, that's of course an, an important prerequisite for breeding. That's true, because when you look back at some of the older books that incorporate statistics on the older approved stallions, you do read in there where it's been noted by the KFPS or others that some stallions transmit specific or certain traits very well, and some of them don't. What what happens there genetically that might cause one stallion to be, I would say a good example is people 
at least here in North America, they'll say, you know, Baird is very well known for his excellent walk and he transmits that well to his offspring. So, you know, a certain point in time, people were saying, if you want a horse with a really good walk or you need to improve on your mayor's walk, he would be a good choice. So what happens genetically that might might make those traits be more transmittable in a certain stallion? Well, I think, first of all, um, what you measure on a stallion and, and on an individual horse in general, that's the combination of its genes expressed and the environmental effects, the non-genetic effects on it. So it can be that Bert has really learned to walk, to step very good, very nice. But that's a combination of its genes and its training, so to say. If it is indeed its genes, that will be reflected by if its uh, progeny is also stepping perfectly. And if you don't see it back in its uh, progeny, yeah, then, then it is in that sense a coincidence to say so. I mean, it's not genetics which makes him stepping that right. In general, for confirmation traits, they have more or less the same height of heritability, value of heritability. So they are transmitted to the offspring to the same extent. Traits like reproduction, they are low, more yeah, lowly heritable. So it's harder to change those traits in a population. But for instance, height, uh, weather's height, that's highly heritable. So that's easy. And there you often see uh, tall uh, stallions. They also have tall progeny. Yeah, I would say uh, we've been breeding taller and taller Frisians over the years. and. Mm -hmm. I think some people are wondering, when is it going to be tall enough or when is tall too tall? You know, we have a lot of very tall Frisians now. And I think at a, at a certain point, that's what we were going for. And that and you did see the slow shift. What about simple characteristics like color? So we know at one point that white markings were still allowed, red Frisians, uh, horses that carry the red gene. How does selecting against those characteristics influence a genetic population? Is that positive? Is it detrimental or not of very much consequence? Yeah, so I think as far as I know, most of the Frisians have been black and you have indeed these red Frisians, this coat color, but you can select against it. But as long as it is at very low frequency, I think it will not influence the genetics of the Frisian horse population. When, for example, this you saw in the past a lot of horses, Frisian horses with this red gene, and when you then start selecting against it, yeah, then you will lose some genetic diversity in the Frisian horse population. But I think when we talk about coat color, the Frisian horse has been black for a long while. So when selecting on this coat color or selecting against the red Frisians, it will have not have that much influence, I think. What about white markings? Because you do see a fair number of foals born with a small amount of white, maybe on their foot or something that's maybe otherwise inconsequential. And I know, of course, a certain amount of white markings are allowed on the forehead in a specific size. But when we say horses that may have, you know, a little bit of white on their leg or something like that are, are not allowed to be entered to the stud book for the breeding population. Is that something that maybe we need to relook given the current situation we're in? Or is it similar to red Frisians where there's maybe so little of these horses that it doesn't matter as much? 
I think there are not so many Frisian horses that have some <coughs> white coat that is not allowed. So I think, yeah, it does not really influence these few Frisians do not really make that much of a difference, I think. Do you have any sense of when maybe, you know, you talked earlier, Bart, about how after a certain number of years when these genetic issues become a little more public and people are aware of them and we start to look for them, when were there early indications of some of the health issues that we, we know exist in the breed now, like so hydrocephalus, dwarfism, megaesophagus aortic rupture? Have we known about those for a long time? Or, you know, I know, I know you're hearing people talk about certain disorders more frequently now, but was there an indication long ago or is this a couple of decades? Can you give us an idea of the time frame? No, no, I have to dig in my memory here. <laughs> Let's see. Uh, I think in uh, the beginning of the 2000s of this century, it was the veterinarian from Utrecht University, Wim Bak. He started uh, collecting uh, samples. So he heard about, uh, on dwarfism and on uh, hydrocephalus. And I think he had samples from horses born in the 90s, roughly, that there is where it started. And he started somewhere in 2003, 2004, I, I remember correctly, I think. So by that time, like I said before, then people start talking about it. Hey, I heard about this disorder also from that and that person and from that and that breeder. And in my experience, then usually the, the frequency by which it started is roughly that 5% of the foals are suffering from such a disease. So that was in the beginning of the 2000s. Okay, and then we started this molecular analysis called genomic-wide association study that became operational as such somewhere in 2010, 2012. And then, then we could see if, yeah, first of all, we could confirm that these diseases indeed were monogenic, which means that only one gene is responsible for these disorders. And if that's the case, then we can look at the genes of the, at the genome, at the whole of the chromosomes, to find if we can really locate the location and the responsible gene. So that was by that time, uh, roughly. And it went pretty well for hydrocephalus and dwarfism because they were able to pretty quickly isolate and find that causative variant, correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we did that in, in collaboration with Utrecht veterinary faculty. And indeed, the hydrocephalus, that was relative quick. I mean, you still need to zoom in from this first genome-wide association study, then still you have a couple of, uh, what was it, 40 to 50 genes that could be the causative gene. So then you have to zoom in on that part of the genome and try to find out which gene it is and which error on such a gene, which mutation basically is uh, responsible. And then we, we were able indeed of uh, developing an, uh, a DNA test by which we can, after that, we can test animals of uh, healthy horses if they are carrier of the disorder or not. For the dwarfism, it took a little bit longer because that was an, a difficult region on the genome, which was not so well known, so to say. So that took a little bit longer. But okay, we were successful there as well. And we, we started out with checking the DNA of 20 
horses that were suffering from disorder in both these uh, disorders. It's interesting that you, you mentioned that about dwarfism, because I think something a lot of people don't realize or appreciate is that we don't have like a hundred percent certainty on the mapping of genomes. We're much better than we, we were in decades previously, but there definitely is the risk or it certainly happens where you may have an interesting gene that you want to look at and see if there is a potential variant there. But sometimes when you're doing that sequencing and you're comparing it to your reference genome, you could be comparing it to kind of just a blank space if that part has not been well mapped, correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's certainly true. Yeah. So th there is a, a reference genome that is developed with, amongst others, with the University of uh, Kentucky, for, which is meant to all horse breeds in the, in the world. But the Frisian horse was not included in the development of that reference uh, genome. And that makes that there are even more blank spaces on the Frisian genome than on the rest of the genome. Yeah. Especially because the Frisian horse is quite diverse compared to the other horse breeds. Right. And the reference genome is that they believe it's Echocab 3. That's primarily based on thoroughbred horse, correct? And they're... Maybe genetically, they're they're fairly far, I guess, genetically from a Frisian. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. So that's a challenge when you when especially if you're doing a short read sequence, which is the most cost effective, and you want to look in that specific area, and there's nothing to compare it to. And I know that's part of what prompted your genome reference project, and we're going to talk about that in a second. But I think it's great for the listeners to understand that that's a very critical part of advancing any Frisian research in the future, because it, it just makes things go so much easier and faster when you're doing that kind of analysis. I have a quick question based on, and I hope that I'm understanding what you're telling us, Bart, but you're saying that the uh, genetic issues that we're dealing with now have evolved over five or six generations. And so we're looking at the issues we're talking about are nailed down dwarfism and hydrocephalus. Okay, but gastroparesis, megasophagus, aortic rupture, those are issues that are still to be to be addressed in regard to testing and, and genomic mapping. In saying that it takes five or six generations for that to come to your attention, are you also saying it's going to take multiple generations to wash that out of the breed if we can get a test and so on? No, fortunately, uh, that's not the case. It can be quicker like what you see now with hydrocephalus and dwarfism. The occurrence of it is it's now hardly disappeared from the population. So because of the tests, we at least can avoid these risk matings between carriers. And yeah, you're right. The carriers are likely still around in the population. But we, now we can identify them and we can decide for each of these carriers if we want to include them in the breeding or not. Or if we say, let's put it that way, it could be an, an option to say, okay, now we remove all the carriers. But like the discussion we had before, if we, with a high frequency disorder, if we are removing it in one generation, then you have the risk of creating another bottleneck. So that is not an, a wise decision. What you can better do is to judge the carriers and see what is their benefit to the population. 
So if it's an outstanding horse, but it is a carrier, then I would say, well, still use it with uh, in, in your breeding, but don't mate it to another carrier. On the other hand, if it is just, say, an average horse and it's a carrier, and basically it's not really adding something to the uh, in terms of genetics to the population, then you better can decide not to include it in, in your breeding program. So in, that is my option in how to have your policy regarding disorders in the population. Does that answer your question? Yeah, so in theory, hypothetically, when the judges are looking at approved stallions, stallion approval process, they look at confirmation and movement and all the other categories, but an additional category would be looked at as genetic makeup and what he, the diversity that he might offer to the breed, correct? Exactly, yes. Yeah. And that's also the nice part of our research because now we only have data of the pedigree, but then we also get data of genotypes, so the DNA of the horse. And with that, we can also see how genetically diverse, so the genetic makeup of the horse. So we can also judge based on that, okay, how interesting in terms of genetics and the diversity is this horse for breeding purposes. Thank you. Thank you. Were you involved in the first attempt at Megasophagus? I know that they did a GWAS prior to us and the University of Kentucky coming on board with that project. Can you explain why that might not have been successful? Yeah, I was there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, so yeah, indeed, you you were right. We thought, okay, now now we know the trick with uh, hydrocephalus and dwarfism. So just let's continue and come up with the new the other uh, disorders. Unfortunately, this technique of this genome-wide association study to check which location on the genome is involved in the transmission of this disorder. They didn't show a clear pattern and didn't point to a specific region that was responsible for the disorders. It was just a mess, more or less. <laughs> and uh, yeah. That's what we inherited. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to get to that in a minute. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I lost connection, I'm afraid. Um, uh, <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. no, so so that didn't give a clue f where to look for, and and we did, we tried several uh, attempts. And this technique, what we used in the genome-wide association study, is that you compare the DNA of the so-called cases or those suffering from the disorder, and you compare that DNA of the, the DNA patterns of those with control with animals that are free of the disorder. And you just want to look for the differences. That is basically the concept of this technique. What we could imagine is that, well, with these diseases, it's much harder to really confirm that the so-called free horses indeed are also genetically not predisposed to this disease. They don't have the, the genes. But these megasophagus and aorta rupture, they are developing at a later age. So it can very well be that we think they, these are healthy, but at a later age, they, they still can develop this disease. So how could we be certain that indeed these horses were free of the disorder genetically? So we tried including older horses. We tried including horses that heavily were used in sports. So we, eh, with the idea of, okay, if they are sensitive to a rupture, 
they are at least challenged. If they were sensible, then they would have developed these uh, diseases. But all what we tried simply didn't work out, I'm afraid. We, we tried to better phenotype, eh? so that means uh, to better measure indeed what is causing the, the problem of megasovacus and auto rupture. We found some clues in it had to do with the disturbed connective tissue development, but it didn't bring us further, unfortunately, by that time. And it could be that it was a, a so-called polygenic, that it indeed many more genes are involved in the development of these disorders. We didn't know for sure. So that could also be a, a cause. And then this genome-wide association study technique would require many more cases and controls to be analyzed, uh, a couple of hundreds. And that means that we should have collected many more cases in particular. There we got stuck. Do you want to tell the story of how we got involved? I was just sitting at home and Ids Halenger called me up and he said, uh, well, initially we had offered our services to the KFPS in regards to research and, and so on, being the foundation that, you know, that we are. And Ids called me up and he said, would you guys be interested in pursuing a, a genetic study on, on megasophagus? And in my ignorance and thinking that, well, this is just going to be push, pull, click, click. We'll get this done in a couple of months and away we go. I said, absolutely. I think that was almost three years ago now. As we've discussed in research, it's been uh, two steps forward and one back and sometimes three steps back. I'm not known in the community for having a high level of patience. <laughs> in, in, in spite of that. The wrong, it's a wrong trait for research. <laughs> <laughs> and, I have, and in spite of that, I have continued to uh, encourage our researchers to figure this out. So all that being said, Bart, and with your experience, I mean, what and the changes that have occurred in the scientific community in regard to genetic studies, long read, short read, blah, 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 RNA and so on, in your educated opinion, do you think that we will eventually be successful in developing a, a test that will uh, somehow define carriers and help the breed to exist on a long-term basis? Yeah, I think, well, since, since then, indeed, and, and the techniques that are now applied with the whole of the sequencing, that's a more, much more powerful technique than what we used a couple of years back. So in that sense, I'm, I'm quite optimistic. What we also noticed, and, and also the colleagues at Kentucky University, is, well, maybe things are not that simple, that it is just a simple gene that is responsible for being, yes or no, a carrier. And it might be that there is an additional genetic effect imposed on that. So that means that if you want to construct some kind of DNA test, then you also need to consider that this additional genetic effect might also play a role. And then you maybe can construct some kind of risk profile rather than, than a clear yes, no. But even then, I think it is a uh, highly valuable tool to be used in a breeding program to uh, alleviate these disorders. So yes, I, I still think we can come somewhere. Well, that's encouraging. I, I appreciate that. That yes, with a, a long addition to that, you'll get there, but it may take some time. I appreciate that. Thank you. I just want to real quickly just summarize where where we've had to head on the megasophagus research for the audience. So as 
as Bart mentioned, we knew that the original study, we needed to do everything that we could to tighten up the phenotype, the characteristics of the horse involved in the study to ensure our best success. So the, the research team at the University of Kentucky recommended that we focus on the presentation in foals because that's a clear potential for congenital disease when the foal is affected at birth or just a few months later. And that's what we started to do. And we collected DNA from the parents as well and any siblings that we could find. And as we started adding more and more horses to the study, the number of potential variants kept going down. So we thought, this is wonderful. You know, we started out with 165,000 possibilities. And eventually, over the course of a year, a year and a half, we wound that down to just one potential variant. But as we've learned the hard way, issues with the reference genome can really set you back. And that's what happened to us initially with our research is that the variant that we were picking up in our our alignments was something that was different between thoroughbred horse and a Frisian horse. And when we realigned all of our sequences with a Shire horse, then that potential variant disappeared. So we were back to square one. So I know all of you probably heard at some point, oh, they have a potential variant. There could be a test very quickly. We did think that. And we were unfortunately turned around and sent back to the the start line with the research, but we didn't give up. We kept pursuing that. We kept adding more cases. We did some long read sequencing, which is a more expensive but very high detailed type of sequencing that yielded us a little more answers. And over the course of this year, we focused on looking for a case that we could potentially collect RNA from as well. So I would love for you to explain the difference between RNA and DNA for the audience so they can they can have an idea where we're trying to take the next phase of our research. The, the DNA that is really the location that is on which the, the genome is uh, is built on. RNA is a product of DNA. There, the building stone of the proteins on which the body is is built up is a product of the of the DNA. I think I should say, and it, it is. Probably it's only expressed at times when it is really needed for that. So that makes it quite different from the DNA. So with DNA, it still be can, it can be that you see a deviation in it. But if it is not functional, so it is not used in building up the products for the protein synthesis, then basically it doesn't make a difference. So therefore, it is of interest to see RNA. It gives you an extra confirmation of the difference in DNA that you see that they are indeed relevant or not. Right, exactly. And so we kind of retooled our approach after we ended up sort of at the same start point where we had compared the affected foals, their DNA, and we could not find a single causative variant amongst them, which we really have been scratching our heads on. So we had a new approach this summer whereby we would just look at the sequence, long read sequence of an affected foal and compare that to hundreds of other breeds of healthy, unaffected horses. And luckily there were plenty of databases for us to compare that to. So that did turn up some potentially very exciting variants for us. But in order to confirm that we were on the right track, we 
did some RNA sequencing from affected horses as well. So basically taking tissue from the affected part of the esophagus and then tissue from the unaffected healthy part of the esophagus and comparing those two different sequences and seeing if we could see what proteins were expressed. So we're, we're currently waiting for that analysis to come back and we're hoping that it will say you're still going in the right direction. And we don't want to talk about how we're going to feel if it says you're not going in the right direction. (laughs) (laughs) Scott might just spontaneously combust. If you see a a nuclear mushroom cloud out in the the West, that'll be me. (laughs) It's been challenging in the least, wouldn't you say, Scott? (laughs) That's minimizing it. Yeah, that's that's a very diplomatic way of putting it. Absolutely. Yeah, so I guess more to follow on that. But let's switch topics now and talk about, we'd love to talk about your research. So we'd love to get kind of an overview. I know you have different phases of your research project, Mariah. Can you walk the audience through what you're doing, when you're doing it, and why? Yes, so what we already said before, we know there are some genetic disorders in the Frisian horse population. And we also talked about We cannot directly select them in one generation because then you eliminate a lot of Frisian horses, which are all carrier of a disease. And then you also can cause another genetic bottleneck and lose genetic diversity. So the first thing what we wanted to do is, okay, we want to select against all the genetic disorders which occur in the Frisian horse population. That was one of our first aims to do. So then you need to come up with how you're going to do that. And you can also look at the severity of the diseases because some disorders are lethal and other disorders are not. And then you can select against the disorders based on the severity. But what we need to keep in mind is when we select against these disorders and there is still a high inbreeding rate, then you can select... But when there is a high inbreeding rate, this will cause the occurrence of novel genetic disorders. So genetic disorders which are not yet there, but can be expressed in the future. So when you want to select against these disorders, you also need to take in mind, okay, we also want to reduce the inbreeding in the Frisian horses. So that is what we came up with. And that is also our main goal of the research, to select against all the genetic disorders but also increasing genetic diversity and thereby lowering the inbreeding rate in Frisian horses. Yeah, the first thing we wanted to do is gain insight in the genetic health of the Frisian horses. And then we talk about the genetic diversity. So from this year on, all foals which are born, the DNA will collect it. So hair samples will be collected. And from the hair samples, you will get some DNA. And based on the DNA of these foals, you can assess the genetic diversity. And yeah, around each year, around 4,000 foals are born. So this year we will gather DNA of 4,000 foals, but also next year, another 4,000. And then when we have two years of foals, we have 8,000 foals in total. And with this amount, we can really say something about the genetic diversity of the future breeding population. So that is one step. Another step, what you talked about, is building this reference genome. Because indeed, there is a reference genome currently available. And this is also used in your research to detect the genetic backgrounds. There are some new techniques. And what we are doing now is taking DNA of 
outcross, so a Frisian horse crossed with a warm blood. And then with this technique, we not only develop a reference genome of the Frisian horse, but also with a warm blood horse. And then we get high quality of both of these horses. This can also be used in your research, in our research, but also in future research regarding disorders and diversity. And what we know now is that this reference genome will be of much higher quality than the current reference genome. And that is mainly because in the last years, techniques did more new techniques developed and which gave us a higher accuracy than previously. So then we assess the diversity, but we also want to get a better understanding of the genetic disorders. And as you are already researching the mega esophagus aortic rupture and gastric rupture, we don't have to do that, but we yeah, have a nice collaboration with you. Yeah, the lots of genotypes of the foals gave us the opportunity to also look for lethal disorders. So that are disorders which do not result in a living foal. And because you will gather around next year, we have around 8,000 genotypes of foals. We can look for these so-called missing haplotypes. So you expect that all different kinds of combinations of genes are possible, so to say. But when in these 8,000 foals, a certain combination of haplotypes is never present, then we suspect that this certain combination of haplotypes is causing some lethality, which will not result in a living foal. And therefore, we don't have a genotype of it because we only have genotypes of the living foals. So that is quite interesting. I'm really looking forward to what results we will get. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious if, if you have any expectations going into the research. Do you think that you'll find the situation to be better or worse than inspected? Or do you not have any preconceived notions going in and you're just going to wait and see what the science tells you? Yeah, I think now we have only pedigree data so we and we have a good pedigree, so we have quite a good insight in what the inbreeding rate is, about the health of the population. But with, with these genotypes, we can see that in much more detail. So we get much more a detailed overview, okay, about the diversity of the population. And with these genotypes, we can also select in the future, okay, which horses are interesting for breeding based on their diversity in their genes. So yeah, we've, it's always a surprise what comes out, but we think in general that there is still some genetic diversity, but we want to look where it is. And also, yeah, with these lethal disorders, we already saw this approach in diverse cattle and pig breeds, and they already found some lethal disorders. And based that this Frisian horse population is inbred, we expect to find some lethal disorders or at least one for sure. I read, uh, I think, somewhere in the paper that you recently completed a pedigree-based inbreeding analysis. Is that right? Yes. And what were the results of that? Can you share that with us? Just in general, what did you find? Yes. Yeah, so in general, yeah, you measure inbreeding rates. That is the rate of inbreeding per generation. And what Bart said before, a generation in horses takes around 10 years. So when we look at the most recent inbreeding rate, that is from around 2014 till 2023. And we saw the recent inbreeding rate is around 0.72%. 
And according to the Food and Agriculture Organization, these inbreeding rates should not exceed 1%. And what I saw in my pedigree analysis is that since 2009, we are below this inbreeding rate of 1%. So we're actually doing a quite a good job. And we have to think that due to the breeding limits, which were introduced in 2003, but also the individual kinship values, which were published then. So breeders could use these kinship values to select a stallion. So in the past, the inbreeding rates were much higher. And around 100 years ago, the inbreeding rates were around 4.7%. So now we are doing quite a good job that the inbreeding rate is below 1%. But we see that the last generation, it increased a bit compared to the generation before, because then it was around 0.5%. And in that time, there were like more foals than there are now. And it could also be that some stallions are now used more, or there are more equal contributions of the stallions to the offspring than before. But yeah, at the moment, we do not really have to worry about it. So you think it's not all the alarm bells shouldn't be going off at this point in time. This is more of a clue that we need to make some adjustments, but we're probably still going to be able to do that safely and still stay below that 1% per generation increase. Is that correct? Yes. And also the KFPS aims to have this inbreeding rate below 0.5%. So then we should have some measures because when where we are now, it not go... When we breed like this, it will stay around 0.72%. But when you make some more measures, then we could go towards the 0.5%. Can you talk about those measures a little bit? I assume that you're modeling some things and providing that, I would assume, potentially to the breeding council. So what have you been able to model for them, if anything, that might drive some policy changes here in the near future? Yeah, so the first thing when you want to model things, you need to know what caused these high inbreeding rates in the past. And what we saw is that the sire contributions, so the contribution of each sire to the amount of offspring, of the total amount of offspring born in each year, was quite unequal. So we saw that the top five sires represented 20% of the offspring born in a year. Wow, that's pretty high. Yes, it is. And it has always been like this. And it was even higher about 30 years ago. Mm. So then you can imagine when some sires, like the popular sires, contribute a lot to the offspring born and others not, it will have effect on the inbreeding rate. And we also see that currently there are like 90 stallions used each year for breeding. And you also see when you increase the number of stallions used for breeding, the inbreeding rate will also go down. So the measures I'm simulating now to reduce the inbreeding rate are like, for example, you can increase the number of stallions or you can make the breeding limit more stricter than 180 that it is now. But you could also focus on horses with low kinship values, for example. Mm. And so how do you, in your modeling, I'm just curious, how do you account for you know, the unpredictability of an individual's decision to breed to a particular stallion or not. You, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> that, yes, that would yeah, be yeah. very difficult to do because uh, I think a lot of breeders are encouraged to select stallion that would be helpful to some of their mayor's weaknesses. And then, of course, you have some breeders that you can assume are just going to be driven to breed to those 
you know, top five or so stallions. So how do you account for such of that variation? Yeah, so uh, that has been quite difficult. And I could say the individual choices of the breeders, you cannot really implement it in the simulations. So the simulations give you a kind of way and what to expect, but it will never be the reality. But for example, desires contributions, you could add in the simulation. Just say, okay, the top five stallions produce 20% of the offspring. You could implement that in the simulation. And the main things you can implement, but the choices of the breeders, you could never do that. Right. So you must have a, I'm assuming that you have a pretty close relationship with the the breeding council then, because would it be correct that any policy changes along these lines that come from your research, they're going to come to the breeding council and they'll produce a recommendation and then goes to the member council. Is that correct? Yes, exactly. So we sometimes have meetings with the breeding council to just advise them and discuss what kind of option could be used. Do you expect to see any initiatives brought forth in this fall's, the fall 2023 member council meeting? Yeah, it could be. I'm not sure uh, because the breeding council needs to come with an advice and it needs to go to the board. So it's it's not that easy that we say this today and tomorrow it's implemented, but it's, it could be. But I'm not sure about it. So maybe next year might be more likely for some of these policy changes. Yes. Okay. That's all very interesting. And I think it's, uh, you know, we've been hearing these buzzwords, SNP testing and STR testing. So I'm very excited to see, you know, what comes out of your research. And it shouldn't be too long, correct? Before you have, you know, the first little things start to come out because you've, you've taken blood samples from the approved stallions over there. You've got data rolling in from the SNP testing. So I'm sure that you're pretty. I'm sure that you're swimming in data right now, or you're soon to be, correct? <laughs> drowning. <laughs> yes, I am drowning in all the data, yes. <laughs> you're correct. Yes, yeah, so I did this pedigree analysis beforehand, but now we also get a genotype and a genome data. So I'm also currently building this reference genome. And based on the primary results, we can already say that the quality is already higher than the current reference genome, which is out there. So it's quite a... I hope to see even more. And we also got the sequence data from the 50 stallions we took the blood from. So I'm, I can also have a look into that. So indeed, I'm swimming in the data. Mm-hmm. When do you expect your reference genome to be completed? What you say, uh, research takes a long time. Yes. And <laughs> <laughs> the analysis also takes some long time. But I think at the end of the year, I will be quite far, I think. Good, good. That's great to hear. Well, the end of year will be soon. (laughs) Yes, (laughs) maybe too soon. Yeah, we'll see. I want to switch gears right now and talk about probably, I would say, one of the most polarizing or maybe currently the most polarizing topics in the stud book community, which is outcrossing. So I know people have very passionate feelings about it, no matter whether they're on one side or the other. And some people are just curious, but explain what outcrossing is and what genetic implications could come from it or, you know, be they good or bad? Because I I think I hear a lot of people say that in their beliefs that it could only be good if they're for it. 
But there definitely are some things to consider when we talk about these diseases that we don't have genetic tests for. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on outcrossing. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, so at first, when you outcross, you most of the time in this example, you take a purebred Frisian horse and you take a horse of another breed and then you get an offspring of this. And at first, this is called the F1. So the first generation of outcross, which is 50% Frisian horse and 50% other breed, looks very well because it's quite diverse, diverse, and there is a lot of heterozygosity, so you call it. And because most of the inbreeding related disorders are monogenic recessive, you need like two copies of the same allele to have the disorder expressed. And when you have 50% coming from, for example, the Frisian parent and 50% coming from the other breeds, you will never see this monogenic recessive disorders in the first offspring present. But then the question is what to do next? Do you then go for backcrossing? So cross this outcross offspring back with a purebred Frisian? Or do you also cross it offspring with the other breed? Most of the time you want to do a backcross with a Frisian horse because you want also want to retain the Frisian horse characteristics. But as soon as you backcross, the horse does not become 50% Frisian and 50% other breeds, but a bit more Frisian. And then there is also a chance of introducing or getting these genetic disorders again. So one generation of outcross is very nice, but when you then start backcrossing again because you want to retain the Frisian horse characteristics, there is still a chance that these genetic disorders will be expressed. Yes, and I can tell you that we have seen that in our research. We have collected DNA from a number of cases of Frisian crosses that are greater than 50% Frisian. So I think that's very important to point out that outcrossing is not a magic bullet. And indeed, without genetic tests for some of these other disorders, it's really its ability to help in our scenario is going to be limited. Yes. Yeah. So I won't say outcrossing is bad because indeed at first it will produce a bit of inbreeding, but you also need to take in mind that outcrossing is not the, then you did not solve the problem. There will be some, yeah, you need to really think of, okay, what will I do next with my outcross and make up a breeding plan as well with these outcrosses. Do you think that there's any positive contributions that could be made currently by starting something like a pilot program. I know the KWPN did that with some of their outcrossing. They're much different from Frisians as far as their diversity and such. But while we're waiting on the research to be concluded, which could be several more years from now, do you think that there's a possibility that we might see a pilot program for outcrossing start? Again, what is the goal? Is it the goal to improve the Frisian population? And then, then it takes also several years before you have a product which really can be beneficial to the population as a whole. So if you say, okay, I want to produce some kind of, of good horses, yeah, you can do that. So I, I agree with Marije, the, the cross product, the F1. Yeah, probably it's on average is more healthy than the original Frisian and maybe also the original other parent and because of the heterosis effect. But really to help out the, the Frisian population as a whole, 
then I think it, it also takes quite some years before you have a, a product that is uh, capable of, of doing so. As an experiment, you can allow it, but for the, the benefit of the purebred population, uh, I don't know yet. Let's talk about kinship because it's a very important target that a lot of breeders are focusing on right now, trying to get it lower, you know, when looking at the average kinship of the population right now. So for anybody that might be listening that's not very well-versed in kinship, can you explain what it is and what the goal is and how important it is to, you know, our current state of affairs in the breed? Yeah, so kinship is the relatedness of an individual with the rest of the breeding population. And how we calculate it now is the kinship of an individual with a future breeding population, and that is the false born in the last three years. And kinship actually gives a measure also for inbreeding. But maybe you can... Yeah, you can consider it. The kinship is the, is the DNA overlap between the individual with the rest of the population. So you can imagine that if the kinship is high, the, the average inbreeding of the current generation is uh, 17.5% roughly. And we consider the DNA overlap, so the kinship with this population, if that is above 20%, then we consider that quite high. And we calculate that to identify those stallions that have a relative low kinship to the population. And that should be uh, basically contribute more to the population to reduce the inbreeding rate in the following uh, generations. Well, the kinship between two parents equals the inbreeding of its offspring. That is how you can uh, define it, and that's the way we use it. So if the average mare in the population has, an, uh, with the, the stallion that you use, has 20% kinship, then you know that the, the average uh, the following generation will increase with these 2% differences. So is our kinship going up or is it staying the same or is it being reduced by some of the choices that breeders make? Do we know how kinship is trending? Yeah, it is increasing. But since we have a closed population, so there's no foreign blood introduced in the population, it will always increase. And that by itself is not a, a problem as long as this inbreeding rate is not more than, yeah, say, this uh, FAO limit of 1%. Let's look at that one. So it is increasing. It is in the same pace as this inbreeding rate increasing. So it is also roughly 0.7% at the moment. I'm curious what you might speculate is the largest contributor to those increases. Is it? Do you think it's that we're selecting those top five stallions, we're looking for those inspection results, and that might be what's a primary driving factor for this? Yeah, I think concerns about inbreeding, it is most of the time just the unequal <clears throat> contributions of the stallions to the offspring. So indeed, you have a few popular sires breeding a lot of mares, but also less popular sires breeding sometimes only one to five mares. So this unequal contribution is one of the main determinants of the inbreeding and kinship rates, yes. I've been contemplating for a long time, you know, our inspection system and the impacts of that on genetics and health. And I've, I've asked this question before, 
publicly when talking to the stud book, but I think a lot of people share this question and it's when we go to an inspection or we're looking for a stallion for our mare to breed a nice full, you know, I think as we've talked here, you know, breeders, especially maybe newer breeders, it's easy to use the tools that the database provides to match your mare to a stallion that you've seen that's really nice. And then you get those great projected scores for the full and you say, this is wonderful. You know, this is going to be a great breeding. And then that horse grows up and goes to inspection and does well. So when we get those results back from inspection, you know, there's no mark, you know, on the paper or in the linear score. There's nothing that's provided to the breeder, like a predicate or a recognition of maybe the contribution that they could make when it comes to genetic diversity, such as a a lower kinship mare. So I'm very curious on what could the stud book do to incentivize breeders? And I know this is kind of a KFPS policy question, but from your perspective, is there anything that we could do differently with our inspection process that might drive a breeder to say, I'm really going to start focusing on low kinship and making that part of my breeding program. I think when things don't translate to monetary value, that's where the disconnect is. And I say that because when the new predicates came out for sport, breeders were really focusing on that because it makes a more valuable horse. That's always good for the breeder. That's a good incentive for them. And it's also something to be very proud of. So How can we drive breeders and owners to focus on health and genetics when it comes to our inspection system? Yes. So I think the first thing that individual kinship values were just published in 2003. I think that already helped because then the breeders had a choice. If they want to focus on low kinship, they can do because then they know the individual kinship values of the stallions. But yeah, we can go a step further and say we can include kinship values within the breeding values, for example. But another thing you could do is link, for example, breeding limits to kinship values. So, for example, you say, okay, a stallion that is has a low kinship value is allowed to breed more mares than a stallion which has a higher kinship value. And that way... You select on low kinship, but you also let the breeders decide, okay, if I want to have, if I choose a stallion that has a low kinship, my foal will automatically also have a lower kinship and could be used in breeding more often when it becomes a future breeding stallion. So there are different options you can approach it. Mm, That's a very interesting point. I got your point, Angie, that the individual breeders they also like to have a, a kinship value. And I think that's a good suggestion you made because uh, people are even more getting aware of the value of this parameter, this kinship. We noticed as we introduced uh, the kinship value uh, back in 2003, we noticed also that the breeders were really considering it in their choice of stallions. We saw that indeed the lower kinship stallions were more used after the publication of the kinships values than before. So indeed, breeders like to have the tools to contribute to uh, improving the health of the population. I found it uh, very positive as I noticed uh, that by that time. So we indeed have the idea to uh, calculate individual kinship values for all the 
horses in the population. And it is a matter of making the right software program for that. It's, an, it's not as easy calculated mm -hmm. as inbreeding is. That makes it uh, complex. Oh, you answered my question that I was just going to ask. I was. That's something that at least I know in North America, a lot of people would really like to see because we can see the kinship value in the database for our breeding population, your, your adult mares who are in the stud book and your proof stallions. But what we can't see it for is foals and then those horses that are not in the breeding population, like your full book stallions and such. And I know a lot of owners that contact, at least they contact the foundation and they ask for advice when they're purchasing a horse. And, you know, a lot of times they'll tell us they're looking to start a breeding program, but all these, you know, young fillies that they might be looking to purchase, they don't see a, a kinship value. So it's easy, I think, to focus on the breeding population, but there are a lot of people that would like to select the foal that they purchase, I think, also on low kinship. It's it's really trending now to be a, an important thing. That's good to hear. We should facilitate that. I agree. It is possible. It's just a matter of software and probably time and expense, right? <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> like all things. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So we, I think we've covered a lot of small, I think relatively inexpensive, easy to put in action measures that the stud book could take in the next few years to kind of work on lowering that per generation inbreeding increase down back towards where they would like to see it. So I think we're, we'll all be eagerly anticipating those items to work their way through the process and come before the member council and see what those results will be. But it's very, reassuring to hear that you're well tied in with the breeding council and advising them on how they might do that. So kind of a good wrap up question, I think, is what, what do you think happens next in the next, you know, few years or maybe even looking out further in five to 10 years? How do you think this is going to shake out for the breed in the end? There are a lot of people that are quite negative about it and say, it's too far. We can only outcross. And then I'm, we're hearing from you that, you know, it's not there yet. There's still some steps that we could take and we, we have research to do. So I'm really curious on where you think that this is headed. Yes. Yeah, so in a few years time, I think we will have much more information than we have now based on these genotypes. We could, for example, select breeding stallions also based on their genetic diversity. So, for example, now they are selected in exterior and movements and sports and also a bit on the kinship. But, for example, when you have stallions which are genetically very diverse and interesting for the population, you could also decide, okay, maybe we should select stallions only based on genetic diversity. So, for example, expand the breeding population because we know there are like a lot of Frisian horses, so it is not the small population, because the Frisian horse population is not that small, but maybe we should expand the breeding population and their genetic diversity. That brings up a, an excellent point, and this is something that I was hoping to ask you about. A couple of months ago, Scott and I were in a presentation, and there was a presenter who is uh, somewhat known to be well-versed in genetics. It was the contention of the presenter that all stallions, whether they're you know, approved stallions or full book stallions, because they carry, they all carry the same Y chromosome, that there's no genetic diversity, that they can't contribute in that way. And that the only difference in the approved stallions is the phenotypes. Is that 
true? Because that seemed really, that didn't track with like kind of what we knew. And I was just curious to get, you know, kind of the scientific facts on that. So the difference is only in phenotype? That's what, what you said? Yeah, essentially, essentially, because they all have the same Y chromosome, there's no genetic diversity, and that it's really only the character, the outward characteristics of the horse that are diverse. I don't agree. Uh, first of all, the Y chromosome is probably not the most important ones of all the chromosomes of a horse. It's not such a big one; it's rather small. But there is also they started out maybe somewhere as uh, from the founders they had the same y chromosome but there is also mutation on the y chromosome so there is diversity there as well so i don't think that that is the main problem to the to species population so mariah when you are you and bart are talking about the genetic diversity within the within the breed that that's inherent in each one of the horses correct i mean that there's a there is a, a broad level of genetic diversity within the stallions. Yes, yeah, so what Bart said, the Y chromosome is just one of the chromosomes, but you have like 31 different chromosome pairs. So there, yeah, Y chromosome not only is not the only genetic diversity in the stallions, but also the other 31 chromosomes, and there could be quite some variety there. Yeah, sure. I think the purpose for that line of thought was that maybe... It could be that only mayor lines offer the genetic diversity because, you know, of their mitochondrial DNA. But in fact, there is potential in any breeding to increase or decrease genetic diversity. And that all comes down to the choices we make. And some of those are driven by science and some by art and some by the incentives that are applied by the KFPS. So it's not as simple as just saying there is or isn't genetic diversity. It's it's really a lot of what the breeders do. They have an immense contribution to, I think, the future of the breed. Yes. Yeah, I fully agree on that one. We, we can maybe uh, inform and tell how, how it's uh, genetically, the theory is that the, it is the practical conductance that makes it successful or not. Yeah, I think we uh, we have a task to inform the breeders, and uh, with that, I'm I'm very glad with this uh, initiative of a podcast because it it is a complex story, the theory. So we have to tell it several times and repeat it and repeat it, but hopefully, it contributes to the conservation of the Frisian breed. I definitely agree with you. I would say that that's also another thing that maybe we should look at. I know that the judging courses, the education weeks that the KFPS does around the world have been very popular and have taught breeders and owners what the inspection process is and how you can make different choices with your breeding program and, and you know, kind of what those breeding goals are. But maybe it's time for a course in genetics and health, maybe that's something that could also help the breeders kind of really understand and buy into where we all need to help each other so that we can put this breed in the right direction. Because if we all just keep looking for those same top five stallions, you may get immediate results in the ring, but there could be consequences later with diversity and health. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's uh, very much true uh, what you're saying there. Yeah. Well, this has really been fascinating, and I hope that our listeners find it fascinating as well. And I'm sure it will not be the first time that we're all sitting around a table or maybe even a microphone talking about genetics with this breed. But I think we're all very appreciative for the work that 
you're doing. And we're all very eager to see the, the outcome of that. So I think this is a such an interesting time in the history of the breed. And I'm sure for both of you, feeling like you're kind of in the middle of this historic moment has got to be rewarding in and of itself. But I think we all just want to thank you for your time and your dedication to this breed. It's what you're doing is very important. I want to echo Angie's comments there. And, and uh, this has been incredibly educational for me. I will admit that my level of knowledge of this is limited and it's been incredibly helpful. And I'm hoping that down the road, when there are breakthroughs, when you have a breakthrough that, that we can uh, reconvene and have another podcast and discuss this to, to uh, share with the community. And I, I'll, we'll plan on that in a couple of months, right? Yes, we should be done with our research in like 90 days. <laughs> no, I'm just, again, I'm just, I know that you are impatient, Disco. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, one of the one of the worst kept secrets in the world. Scott doesn't have any patience. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, no, this is this has been great. We have, we spectacularly appreciate the time that you've been able to spend with us. I know this has gone on longer than we'd planned, but your answers have been so detailed that we sure as heck didn't want to cut you off and for time purposes. But again, thank you so much for your time and, and your expertise and your dedication to this breed. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Uh, we really highly appreciate it. Yeah, like we said before, we think it's also really necessary to make our programs, which we hopefully can uh, present in a couple of months, you said, Scott? <laughs> yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. That no, yeah, but but to have that become successful, uh, we like also to contribute in this way through presentations and podcast. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you. It is really nice to also share the knowledge about genetics to other people, and really nice to also hear if that helped them in yep. making their choices for the breeding stallions, for example. Sure. Well, I think that you're, the education that you're applying or giving the uh, breeding community is invaluable to the future success of this breed. And had it not been done, I'd hazard to think where we'd be going with the Frisian horse. So, Mariah, we want to wish you luck in your PhD program. And Bart, good luck and keep a good eye on her. I know she's a hard worker, so that's not going to be a problem. So, You're right. <laughs> okay, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that's all the time we have for today. We hope you'll join us soon for another episode of The Frisian Advocate. Do you have a Frisian story to tell? Email us at info at and we'll add you to the lineup.